The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hello, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me. Binge eating is actually the most common eating disorder in the U.S. Binge eating affects an estimated 2.8 million people. Today we're going to take a close look at binge eating and ask, how would I know if I was a binge eater? What are the reasons that people binge? Are there differences between men and women? How would I find help for binge eating? And what if someone I love is a binge eater? Our guest today is Jenny Kramer. She's an expert who will give us answers to these questions and many more. Jenny Kramer is the founder and executive director of Metro Behavioral Health Associates Eating Disorders Centers. She is the co-author of Overcoming Binge Eating for Dummies, a sensitive and very informative book on this topic. Jenny Kramer is the chairperson for the Board of Directors of the Binge Eating Disorders Association. She has frequently been interviewed in the media, and her new book will soon be released. It's entitled Food, Money, Time, and Love. Jenny Kramer, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thanks so much, Suzanne. Happy to be here. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Um, Jenny, let's start by asking the question, what is binge eating? Well, it's really a term that's so overused and misused. I think all of us think if we've just eaten more than our bodies need in a particular moment, then we're binging. That's really not the case. Binge eating is very distinct from something called emotional eating, compulsive overeating, If I can take just a second to distinguish the three, it might be useful. So all of us have probably eaten in an emotional way. Uh, We're very aware that we're doing it. Perhaps um, we're nervous about something, we're anticipating something, something's happened, we just feel badly, and somehow it feels like a good idea in the moment that eating something will be soothing, even though it may not be in response to physical hunger. Compulsive overeating has a lot of those features, but it's a much less conscious process. It's something like sort of eating all day long, not at distinct mealtimes, not with distinct hunger and satiety cues, just sort of noshing all day long um, and not even realizing it. Binge eating is some combination of those things, but it's really um, a much more serious form because... Most often, it's an extraordinary number of calories eaten in a sitting, way beyond what your body would ask for. Um, Secondly, it's really mostly done in secret, and so there's a lot of shame about it. And 
the actual binge activity itself brings with it some health risks if it continues for any period of time. It's also, frankly, financially expensive because the amount of food is really something that, you know, is, is again, beyond what someone would, would normally eat. Mm. Now, in your book, you describe, you call it the anatomy of a binge. Mm. What, what are kind of the steps that someone would, would take that would help us define this? Well, the anatomy of a binge is a phrase that we use uh, actually when we're treating, um, you know, people who suffer from this. Um, we actually ask them to, at some point, take us through not what they're eating, because that's just very shame-driven, but more about what are the sensations that are happening in their body if they're aware of them just before and during and after. What is the thought process that goes on just before, during, and after? What is the emotional state just before, during, and after? And most often, it takes a while to even become aware of what those are because it's almost done in this very sort of dissociative way. Uh, The anatomy of a binge also just refers to, you know, how long does the binge take? Is it a half hour? Is it three hours? Is it all night? Most often... A binge is only stopped either by physical pain or running out of food or just falling asleep from the body's fatigue. So when we talk about the anatomy of a binge, it's really trying to break it down. And by the way, in the most compassionate way possible, because there's enough shaming that goes on around this, you know, everywhere. And the last thing one wants to do is either shame themselves or shame someone they know who does this. Mm, so well said. Um, Jenny, do binge eaters binge many times a week? Is it once a month, some of the time? To really be diagnosed with this, how often would a person be doing the binging? Um, yes, yes, and yes. I mean, the DSM, which is the book that you know we all use for diagnostic codes, um, has specific guidelines in it, but frankly, um, it really doesn't matter because it's really about how frequently must it happen. I mean, the people that we see are usually doing this a minimum of twice a week, and it could be much, much more than that, and, you know, sometimes someone says, well, you know, I do it every day, and then I'll go a whole month, and I haven't done it at all, Um, and that happens too, and so we want to also intervene and understand what was different in that month because there are so, so many triggers and it's important to try to break them down. That, too, is the anatomy of the, of the binge eating. So by, by criteria, you know, maybe once a week, but truly um, that's, that's not realistic. It happens much, much more often. Okay. Now what about male and female differences? Do, do women binge more than men? Is it the same? What have you found? <sighs> Well, you know, it's a hard question to answer because um, if we go by the data which is presented by people who have had the courage to come forth and get treatment, until recently most often women sought treatment. That doesn't mean men weren't doing it as often. Uh, My experience and the experience of many of my colleagues is that it's probably done equally by, you know, men and women and everything in between. But again, as in all healthcare, 
women will seek out care sooner or faster. Um, and sometimes women actually seek out the care for their loved one who is a male. Mm-hmm. Now, that's very well intended, uh, certainly, but truly you have to want to make some change. You have to want to be, you know, not doing this in order for any intervention to work at all. It's not going to work if you're doing it for somebody else. It really has to be a matter of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. So to answer your question, I think it's probably happening equally. Um, One of the interesting things to also be looking at is is ages. I, I think anybody can binge at any age, and they do, but the statistics tend to show that binge eating as, as a diagnosable behavior is probably more likely in 30 plus, and plus could be, you know, 100, but mostly it's 30 plus. But it does, of course, happen for children and adolescents. Hmm. Now, do you think, and do you have any um, sense of whether, do men and women binge for different reasons, Jenny? I think... Man A probably binges for different reasons than man B. I mean, everybody has their own drivers, and that's part of the work. The work is to really not just stop. I mean, you know, if it was so simple to say to someone, listen, you really need to stop doing that, and they say, oh, okay, glad you told me. I didn't know. You know, I'd be selling shoes for a living, I suppose. <laughs> but it's, it's really not about that. Um, it's really getting to what drives this behavior despite the fact that intellectually I know this is not a behavior I like. I don't like the result. I don't like how I feel. I don't like what it costs. And yet I do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think men and women both probably use binge eating and, and may I say all forms of disordered eating, including anorexic behaviors and bulimic behaviors, really in an effort to self-soothe. Now, you might say, well, why that? Why not something else? Well, usually there is something else. You know, there may be co-occurring behaviors such as, you know, abuse of alcohol or drugs or gambling or any, any such thing. Uh, but if we're talking about binging specifically, I think probably the reasons are the same. How they describe them may be different. It really depends a lot on their level of insight and how long they've been doing it. Do you think um, there's some family connection in the sense of if someone in a family is binging, are the chances that others will soothe with binging, are they greater? Do you see family components at all? Well, to me, this is the question of the hour because um, it's, a, it's a very controversial discussion, you know, in the field. We can't point to the binge eating gene. I don't know if one day we will, but we, that, that doesn't exist right now. What we can talk about is what I'll call inheritability, vulnerability. So, for instance, if in your bloodlines there are, you know, family members who have had their own struggles with binge eating or other disordered eating or alcohol addiction or drug addiction or any such thing, there is some likelihood that you might be more likely. It's not stated. It doesn't mean you will, but it means that under the wrong circumstances, you might be more likely. Now, one of the other factors 
that I think is across the board with all behaviors that ultimately hurt oneself is also the existence of trauma. And so trauma is a whole other discussion. But in terms of, you know, are you going to catch it from someone? No, it's not contagious. Is there a greater likelihood if you've either witnessed it a lot in your family or others in your family have been doing it? Perhaps. But it doesn't fate anybody to anything. What has to pull the trigger is really many other things, including temperament, including environment, and, uh, you know, so many other cues. Mm. You know, would you describe, you're sort of implying, is binge eating, can we consider it an addiction? Well, that would be the second most controversial question in our field. (laughs) Um, You know, it, it, it depends how you look at it. If you were to look at, for instance, functional MRIs of the brain or PET scans during a hit of cocaine, a hit of heroin, binge drinking, and perhaps, let's say, binge eating or a bulimic episode, they really do look alike. I mean, it'd be very hard to tell them apart. So could we say in simple terms that the pleasure centers of the brain are equally stimulated? Sure. It depends then how do you describe addiction separate from the neurobiological component. My definition, which I just think is a practical one, is that On one side of the equation, you have what I know. On the other side of the equation, you have here's what I do. That synapse, that space between what I know and what I do, the fact that they don't match, that to me suggests at least a a, a habitual, if not an addictive quality. But it doesn't mean you're an addict. It just means that there is a very habitual behavior that feels addictive. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh well, yes. And so I, I almost I feel I want to say things become addictive. And you correct me when, for a time, they work. That is, if binge eating does numb me from psychological pain or from something I'm having a hard time with, I may be more likely to continue to use binge eating and still until it really starts to become painfully oppressive to my life and even then I might continue and for someone else all of a sudden the drinking really does do something when they're 13 and or they're 18 and it's it sort of works in some way of course it's a quick fix that doesn't work much at all Mm. but would you Mm. say that for some families or for some people the eating works for a time Sure. I mean, again, it depends on why you're doing it, um, whether you know why you're doing it or not. At some point, I think the universal driver is to numb out pain, numb out thoughts, and so, sure, it's going to work, and then seven seconds later, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like someone who does do some behavior that ultimately hurts them. In the moment, they feel, I must do this. I can't do anything but this. You know, don't talk me out of it. This is the thing that's going to help. And then they do it. And then there's that moment of calm followed by, oh, God, what did I just do? Mm-hmm. So it, it's really, it follows the addictive cycle. Um, but in the end, 
it, it truly doesn't, it doesn't work, obviously. And, and people find this out very quickly, but now they're caught in the habit of it. They're caught in the shame of it, which then actually drives it even further and faster. It, cre- it creates even more unhappiness and suffering mm-hmm. for which we need the binge. Mm-hmm. Now, have people said that, I don't know this, that binge eating has increased, is it at all related to the addictive properties of high fat, high sugar foods that are in fast foods? Do we, is that a component to the numbers that you're seeing? It's a component. It's not a cause. You know, I mean, again, if we agree that most of this is driven by some emotional, psychological need, uh, real and imagined, known and unknown, certainly there are foods that are going to make it easier because there are foods that are going to soothe you faster. You know, uh, you can binge on anything, but certainly I think, you know, binging on a cucumber is probably not going to have the same impact as right. binging on something very sweet. So, again, it's not cause and effect. Um, it can perpetuate it because, again, that's, that's the soothing sensation. It's a physically soothing sensation. I want to make the point, though, Suzanne, because I think it's an important one. And there will be those who don't agree with what I'm about to say about what else is new. Um, really... There is no such thing as a bad food. Any food, except, of course, if you have an anaphylactic allergy, um, any food is a food. And if it's used in the context of hunger cue, satiety cues, my body needs fuel, my body feels hungry, now my body doesn't feel as hungry, and there's also some pleasure derived from certain foods. There are aesthetics about certain foods. It's about moderation, but it's also about being in the moment with whatever it is that you're eating. You know, we label foods as bad foods because we think those are going to be the things that make us do the behaviors, not necessarily. Okay, we're going we're gonna to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Jenny Kramer. She's our eating disorders expert, and she's the author of Overcoming Binge Eating for Dummies. Stay with us. We have much more information coming. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. 
We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire, with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're speaking with Jenny Kramer and we're talking about understanding and overcoming binge eating. Jenny, in your work, have you identified common psychological components that are associated with binge eating? Sure. Um, I would say that they're also the same for any form of disordered eating uh, across the spectrum. And just as a side note, um, it's important to say that many who would identify as those who binge have also been across the spectrum in terms of anorexic behaviors or even bulimic behaviors. It's not one or the other, mm. although that can be. It's most common for someone to sort of travel the continuum. But the most common psychological components, first of all, depression. Um, and, you know, depression is sometimes a word that's overused. Certainly we all experience sadness. But depression is distinct in that it's certainly over a much more, a longer period of time and at a much deeper level. And so it's, it's hard to sort of come back from those feelings. So depression is most often a common, a common occurrence. Anxiety is equally as common. And from where I sit, depression and anxiety are sort of two sides of a hand that mm-hmm. always travel together. So where one is present, usually the other is present. Um, as I said earlier, trauma, I think, is a common contributor, and so there are all of the psychological effects of trauma, and we can define trauma in so, so many different ways, but it's really based on one's perception of what those trauma may be. 
And interestingly, something I might not have said a few years ago, but I'll say it today, one of the components is anxiety that's brought on by one's perception of current day events. Never before have I seen so many of our clients coming in with just profuse fear and anxiety and upset and anger about how they feel about their perception of government and what's happening, you know, without any political discussion. It's just interesting that it's coming into the rooms so much more frequently. There's a whole existential sense of panic and fear of the unknown. I I feel and see it also. Um, Is In terms of that continuum, it's so interesting that people maybe have had different types of eating disorders. Mm. Is binge eating anywhere in particular do, they, do you start out as a binge eater, or does that come farther down the line, or is there really no kind of um, timeline on that? I think it can be anything and anything. I mean, it really depends on what your exposure is to messages in your family system, messages in your culture. There are certainly um, the cues that we pick up in our social circles. Um, It's really also about availability. A lot of it is how you perceive just your whole world around you. I think any of it can happen in any order. What's also interesting is that if in fact one has very anorexic behaviors, down the line, if treatment is not sought or if it's not done properly, it is very common to go to the other side mm-hmm. of, of the spectrum simply because there's been so much deprivation. And we haven't even used the D word yet, which is dieting. And dieting to me is possibly the top of the list item about what really starts to affect binge eating because there is such deprivation. Uh, anything that's called a diet is not a plan. It's just deprivation. And again, very controversial, but this isn't even about body size. It would be very interesting, I think, for your listeners to know that people who do engage in binge eating behaviors are of every body size. There is this assumption that if someone's a binger, they're in a larger body. Not necessarily at all. And so it's, it's an important shift in our perception culturally. Uh, that's so great to hear, as well as to hear dieting as a trigger for eating disorders or disordered eating that has pain and suffering and anxiety associated with it. Mm. Now, when you talk about the consequences, what are some of the health risks that are worth knowing with respect to binge eating? Well, again, and I want to emphasize, these are health risks associated with the behaviors, not with body size, but certainly um, there's a temporary increase in blood pressure. Think about the motion and the action involved in taking in an extraordinary amount of food into the body that it's not used to processing. So you can also get reflux and heartburn Some really report a lot of dysregulated sleeping because depending on the time of the day that they do it, depending on what the foods are, they may not sleep because they're not feeling well 
There may be a lot of caffeine in some of the foods that they're eating. Certainly, blood sugar is very dysregulated, again, because the body is trying desperately to process the amount of food coming in. Naturally, there would be digestive issues, um, including, you know, bloating and gas and, and diarrhea, nausea, constipation, all of that, again, just in the body's attempt to manage the amount of food coming in. You know, mm-hmm. in the long term, if somebody were to continue this behavior for quite a long period of time, certainly, depending on the foods that are being eaten and the frequency with which the binging is taking place, there could be issues related to hormonal function and to uh, not only blood pressure, but blood fat levels and uh, you know, just all the digestive issues that you can imagine. I mean, it even puts people at risk for um, you know, uh, immune disorders because you're, you're really making your body work so much harder. Mm, I see. Now, <clears throat> all this said, what have you found is the factor that makes people say, I have to stop this, I need help? Well, it really depends on a lot of things. One is just sick and tired of being sick and tired. At a certain point, they just can't derive any of the relief that they thought they were getting from the behavior, and now it's become an albatross, and now it's become more painful than it is helpful. So that, that's one thing. Sometimes a health crisis may also motivate someone to address the behaviors if, if something's happened as a result of the frequency of the binging. Um, if it's really because a family member says, you know what, you really should, and this is not acceptable, and if you don't take care of this, I'm going to leave you, that never works. <laughs> family members mean well, and people really want the people they love to not be suffering, but truly, it, is, it, it has to come from the person who's engaging in the behavior. So some of it is just you know, that they've become socially isolated, which is very common. And so at a certain point, the food is no longer a friend, the behavior is no longer a friend, and they're lonely. So those, those are just some of the things that really brings, that bring people in. Now, one of the things in re- related to this that I really liked in the book is that you you d- discuss steps for getting ready to change. Mm. I think you call them smart goals. Maybe you can speak a little bit about them. Well, sure. So smart stands for a specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time bound, and that can that can sound overwhelming in itself, but really. What it boils down to is the metaphor of food, which is bite-sized pieces, one moment at a time, one step at a time. It's too overwhelming to say to yourself, okay, that's it, I have to stop, this is it, that's it, I'm not doing it anymore. First of all, it's not likely that that's going to happen. Second of all, it's too big, it's just too much. So by by the specific part of it, what we mean is to... Take one thing and say, okay, I'm not going to binge today. That's a specific goal that I'm going to try to attempt today. And either it's going to happen or it won't. And if that happens, well, that's great for today, literally a day at a time. Um, 
measurable, you know, we get into a gray area here because what I, what I don't recommend is measuring weight because, again, I'm going to say this again and again, it's not relevant. You know, there are those who come in for treatment because they did gain a lot of weight related to the binge behaviors, and certainly we acknowledge that that's upsetting to them. But as one starts to eat in a very natural way for your body, actually learning how to respond to hunger cues and to satiety cues, your body will find the size that it is supposed to be. So the measurable part, uh, the measurable part is really about taking some control by, for instance, journaling, not what you ate, but more so, what time of day did I do this? What was I thinking before? What was I thinking during? What was I thinking after, afterwards? And just trying to get your hands around it in some measurable way. Um, and again, the attainable part is, again, goals that are not too small or too big because they become meaningless. So it's really about understanding that this is not going to change overnight. It didn't begin overnight. And to be patient with yourself and with the behaviors. Um, Time-bound, you know, it's nice to think that, okay, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself some time to really assess and, and, and redefine and refine all the goals that I want for myself. But again, I can't say enough that this must be done with compassion. And it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around because the behavior itself is so punishing. Mm-hmm. So now we're saying, look, the punishment has to end. Not the binging, the punishment has to end. So start with just being kind. You know, so often we say to the folks that we have the privilege of working with, if you would just speak to yourself the way you speak to those you love, that would be half the battle. Because mm-hmm. the way you assault yourself by telling yourself what you tell yourself, you would never speak to people that you love that way. So that, mm-hmm. that's sort of an also uh, another specific behavior. The self-compassion for the suffering, for your own suffering. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Compassion is a very big part of this. And, you know, it's hard to come by because people are very, very, um, you know, shamed. And it's hard to come by because, you know, the reality is if you are going through, let's say, anorexic behaviors, right, Everybody jumps to attention and they want to get you help and, 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 and let's take care of that. And when you're in binge eating behaviors, if it has affected your body size in a way that others are going to judge and they're going to fat shame you, now they treat it much differently than they would the seriousness of anorexia and they really shouldn't. It's, it's, it's as serious and yet, you know, society has certain thoughts about, you know, people who binge and they're just out of control and they need discipline. Yeah, if only that were the case. That's the message of the diet industry. The diet industry says, oh, just take hold, just eat what we give you, and you'll be fine. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple. In fact, that works against what we want to accomplish. Jenny, that's so well said. So let's go to the next step. I decide I need treatment. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what type of treatment to seek and what is mm. what really makes sense what what can we share on that a lot of it is geographical um, you know in what I'll call 
urban metropolitan areas. Um, there are ways to find psychiatrists and psychotherapists that are very specifically trained to treat disordered eating in lots of different ways, and to me that is a first step. If, however, what motivates you for treatment is you're having medical issues, obviously you always want to address those first. In areas where that's harder to find, um, sometimes you you will find therapists who are quite good at treating things like anxiety and depression and they can they can certainly help in those ways but they may not be disordered eating specific or trained so certainly i think therapy is a first step now if somebody's slow to want therapy um, certainly medical is the first our experience is that nutritional intervention can be helpful because it can be motivating but again I want to say this for the 17th time, it's not about putting somebody on a diet. The nutritional component is really more about looking for are there physical and nutritional cues that are also contributing to the binge eating and how do we start to have a structure so that you can do what we call intuitive eating. Now, intuitive eating is a very scary word to people who have never done so or think they have never done so, but actually everyone has eaten intuitively. And how I know this is that everyone's been a toddler. If you ever watch a toddler eat, they know exactly how much they want, they know what they want, they know when they're finished, and they let you know it. And so often we want to get in the way of that. You know, the clean plate club, and you really have to eat more, and that's not enough. It is enough. And actually... Toddlers really know. And so we all have that experience and that memory of, of having been in a body where we knew what we wanted, we knew when we wanted it, and we knew when we were full. So intuitive eating, it takes us back to that slowly. So again, it's working with nutritionists that are very trained in intuitive eating. Um, I, I can give you a lot of resources at the end um, for, for other organizations that, that have people that they have trained Um, So I think therapy and nutrition, and strangely, the thing that also works incredibly well is the group setting. Now, I can imagine some of your listeners saying, oh, yeah, that'll never happen. I'm never going to a group. I'm too ashamed. I would never sit and talk about this with other people. Well, I hope that that's not the thought because to be in a room of people, in a safe room, in a confidential room, with people who understand the behaviors, understand the anatomy of it, understand the feelings behind it, is a very comforting thing. It's not commiseration. It's about learning skills. It's about not feeling like a pariah, about not feeling like you're the only one on the planet who does this. And that brings us to something else, which is, again, in certain geographical areas, you might not be able to find a group that's specifically devoted to disordered eating or binge eating disorder, and so... Some go to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, Jenny, um, we're going to have to take a break, so I'm going to stop you right here. It's such, uh, Jenny and I are both group people, and I Mm. want us to come back to this option, but we're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Jenny Kramer. She's our eating disorders expert. She's the author of Overcoming Binge Eating for Dummies. Stay with us. She has some very important information coming up. We'll be right back. 
Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We're speaking with Jenny Kramer. She's the co-author of Overcoming Binge Eating for Dummies. And we were just discussing options for treatment. And Jenny had mentioned um, she's a trained group therapist, as I am, and we know each other from the American Group Psychotherapy Association. And she was talking about the importance of group as an option, but that sometimes that's not so accessible to Mm. the location you may live in. So where does a person go at that point then? So I started to mention uh, Overeaters Anonymous, and I I say it with great qualification. There are those who have 
really done very well with OA and they swear by it and they love the community and certainly there is the community aspect of it and there is being with other people who are in similar situations and that's and, and it's free of charge, which is a, an important thing for many people. It's important, though, that you find a group, because they're not all equal and they're not the same, that you find a group that doesn't put the emphasis on the food, that it's more about the behavior. Because what we've often seen, unfortunately, is that with the best of intentions, we've seen many clients who come in after having attended OA meetings for some time, and they have become so restrictive that now they're Eatings or eating behaviors are either anorexic or they have completely bounced back to, to more binging than they ever did before. So I'm not berating OA or 12-step in any way. I think it saves lives. But I, I do say you have to be very discerning about finding groups that focus on feelings and on behavior and not shaming rather than on food. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned in your book, and and I want to ask about, because it goes, it's important throughout any addictive type of treatment, and that is the meaning of a relapse. It is so disheartening to people, to family, it can take someone right off track. Mm -hmm. How do you see relapse? Well, certainly in the area of alcohol, drugs, things like that, a relapse can be very severe and it can be very dangerous to somebody physically, financially, emotionally, all of that. I think when we use it in terms of eating behaviors, it's not that it's any less serious, but the the word that I prefer to use is human. It is human to not be able to do and be all the things you want to do and be on a particular day. So what often happens is someone will be very successful at eating in a mindful way, eating in an intuitive way, and something happens and they revert to some of those behaviors, and then then what happens is they say to themselves, well, that's the end of that. Okay, I, I blew it, so that's that. No, that's not that. What happened was there was that behavior, and now there's the next moment. And that's a very hard thing for people to wrap their minds around. Relapse is what you define it as. If you make a relapse a a huge critical life event, then, of course, that's how you're going to treat it. If you say to yourself, however, huh, wonder why I did that. Hmm, let me be curious about this. Let, Let me figure this out. I'm sure that's what I thought I should do in the moment, but if I really take a look at it, maybe that wasn't the thing to do. You can hear the gentleness of that versus, well, that's it, I'm screwed now, you know, that, that's the end of that. And that's really what determines someone's ability to, to stay on point. That's terrific. Now, we hear sometimes about the use of medication or even surgery with respect to binge eating. What's your take on that in terms of effectiveness or as a possibility? Surgery is not a possibility, let me be crystal clear, and I hope I don't offend anyone who believes otherwise, but it is not a possibility, it is not a solution, because all that happens is someone feels desperate, they are made a promise that they will be stopped from themselves, and perhaps they are for some short period of time, and that's very attractive. But what also happens, no matter what the form of surgery, 
is that they are then being asked to eat in the most unnatural way for the rest of their lives. There's no room for intuitive eating. There's no room for body trust. And what also happens is that the psychological drivers, the emotional drivers, they haven't gone away. They're still there. And so what we find is that in more than 75% of cases of people who have had some form of bariatric surgery, they wind up, if their goal was to lose weight, they wind up gaining back more than 100 to 125% of what they lost. So not only what they lost, but more. And they're very physically ill because they have to sort of bypass the surgery in order to continue to eat the way they've been eating. So if you're not going to identify what drives it in the first place, then you know, the, the surgery is really just a Band-Aid. And, and really not, not effective. In fact, I, I think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It certainly sounds it. I, I, I know people who sadly have um, continued to eat after such serious surgery. So it's mm. important what you're saying. Um, let me ask, I, I'd like us to do this for our listeners. You do list um, 10 things that a person can do instead of binging. So if anybody listening is thinking, oh, my God, where do I start? Mm. What can we give them as some possibilities even today when this show is over? Sure. Um, The first thing, and it might sound too generic, but, but listen carefully to it, is to pay attention. And what that means is if you have the urge to binge or severely overeat, just take a moment, literally step back from it. If you're in the room where the food is, just just step out of that room for 15 minutes, just 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, not to be looking at your watch to see when the 15 minutes is up, but in that 15 minutes, take a moment perhaps to journal and to just write some things to yourself in a kind way. You know, is this what I want to do? What will this solve? Can I, what am I feeling? What, am I, what are the sensations I'm feeling in my body? What are the thoughts I'm having? Are they disturbing to me? Is this going to take them away? Is this going to solve anything? How will I feel on the other side of this? How will I feel after the binge? And if you can be kind and compassionate with yourself rather than blaming or punishing, there is a chance that that urge will pass. And you will have had some insight about yourself. Another thing to do, frankly, unless it's 3 o'clock in the morning, um, is to go take a walk. You know, uh, just to move your body to take some action that takes your mind away from the urge in that moment. Again, you need 15 to 30 minutes for the urge to pass. It doesn't address why the urge is there. It doesn't mean it's not going to return, but we're just addressing the urge in that moment. Take a walk. And if for any reason you're physically unable to take a walk, then simply, again, remove yourself from the room where the food is and breathe deeply. I know people hear this all the time and they say, yeah, 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 enough with the breathing. Yeah, well, actually, there is no enough with the breathing because without it, we're dead. So the breathing is really about taking in a very full cleansing breath, holding it for maybe four seconds, and letting it out as much as you possibly can. There are wonderful uh, mindful meditation apps uh, on your phones. 
and they're not, you know, huru guru. They are really very practical. They take you through maybe a 5 or 10 or 15 minute guided meditation. You don't have to do anything except listen and breathe. That's all you have to do. And you just have to make sure you're in a room where there isn't going to be other noise or someone watching you do it. And of course, don't do it when you lie down to go to sleep because you'll miss the whole thing. But the idea is to calm the body. That's the point. Now, if you're, one last tip I'll give you, you know, is if you're someone who routinely binges, you know, at night or before you go to bed, one thing that we have found, just it's interesting, that if you brush your teeth, um, you're less likely to do it because you've ended the night. I, I brushed my teeth, so now I'm going to bed. It's just sort of the signal that your brain gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, use writing as much as you can. You know, make a list of all the ways that binging hurts you. And also, you know, that, that's a distractor as well. Okay. Um, now, in the interest of time, what are two things that someone can do if their loved one is binging? Well, the first thing is to not to be the food police. Do not comment on what they're eating, even if you have to bite your tongue. Do not comment. All it does is shame. And even if you think that you're telling them something they don't know, even if you think you're giving them great words of wisdom, I know you love them and you care about them, and maybe there's even a part of you that's ashamed of what they're doing, you must not tell them what to eat or ask them if they know what they're eating or ask them if they've had enough. That, that's the most shaming thing that you can do. Also, to not be berating, to just be supportive. You know, don't lecture, don't tell them, you know, what they could be doing, should be doing, would be doing. To just be with them in the most supportive way possible. And if they do ask for help, to help them find it. Don't find it for them, but help them find it. And take your cues about how much help they want you to give them in this process. Terrific. Now, how can people find you, order your book, and even order your new book, Jenny? So the new book is not off the presses yet. It's almost ready. It's called Food, Money, Time, and Love, and I'll be happy to let you know when it's you know ready to go. Uh, the Overcoming Binge Eating for Dummies um, is certainly on Amazon, and it's on barnesandnoble.com. It, it's really all over the place, and thank you for your support in that. Um, our center is called Metro Behavioral Health Associates, and our website is uh, M, like Mary, B, H-A-N-Y dot com. I'd also like to um, recommend that your listeners also look for a book which is called Intuitive Eating. It's uh, by Evelyn Triboli, and it's a a marvelously written uh, book which really can start to take you through that process. And another book we love is called Body Respect by uh, Linda Bacon. Uh, these are really just a very different orientation around this, a much a practical but very compassionate in its own way. Terrific. Uh, Jenny, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Your clarification of binge eating, the suggestions you've made really have been a gift for us today. Thank you so much for your work and for being our guest. It's been my privilege. Thanks so much. Thank you. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, on the podcast app of your iPhone, iTunes, Sketcher. This show will be a podcast 
by 6.30 this evening. Remember, drop me a comment or question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.